Our text for today comes from John chapter 1, verses 20, uh, 15 through 22. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Today's a good day. Um, before we begin today, I just want to echo two uh, of those quick items that Ashley brought to your attention. First, uh, we, wanted, we want to uh, really emphasize this Cadence Closet event in a couple of weeks on September 1st. There are events at our church where um, we want 100% particip participation, and this is one of them. Um, uh, primarily uh, to serve, to be there bodily, to be physically at this event. Now, I know that part of what the last year has done has created a little atrophy in our show-up muscle. You know, right? Like we've gotten very comfortable to whatever... Uh, whatever our Tuesday night routine is usually, right? And we haven't become familiar with uh, getting going. I had a mini panic attack when I looked at the handwritten calendar that Ashley had for this fall because it had three sports and all of the church activities and all of the PTA events and all of it. And I said, I don't, I don't think I can do it, right? I don't think I can do it. But here's the truth. You can, and so can I. We're actually going to do it together. And so Cadence Closet is going to be a tremendous opportunity for us to partner together. So there are some sheets on, the, on, the, um, on your row. If you'd grab that and look at it and figure out how you could participate, that would be amazing. We'd like to sign up as many of you as possible this week, all right, so that they know ahead of time who's available. Uh, all right? All right, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is Back to School Sunday next week. Last year, we had to cancel Back to School Sunday, and this, week, this year, uh, we're going to have it. And it's really going to be an incredible time together. Pastor Ashley's going to be baptizing some of our youth, which is great. Uh, we're going to start that new check-in system that we talked about. So if you have a child, I would encourage you, be a few minutes early, because we're, uh, we're starting a new system. And when you start a new system, it's nice to be a little early. But we're also going to pray, and I'm excited about this, we're going to pray a prayer of blessing over all of our families and all of our students uh, and all of our college students as we begin this next year. You know, biblically, 
prayers of blessing are this important part of what it means to be the church together. And I, and I, and I found a really good one that I've tweaked a little bit, and I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. So here's the thing. I want you to be here for that. <laughs> All right? Again, this is one of those Sundays when uh, to be together is such a vitally important thing. If there's a friend of yours who isn't here today, make sure to reach out to them uh, and remind them to be here. Put it on your calendar. If you need to, I will allow it. Uh, a special dispensation this week. You can get a tattoo on your arm that reminds you to be at church, uh, just like the guy from Memento, right? Uh, that reminds you to be at church next Tuesday. Back to school Sunday. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a great week, and I love when we get to be together and see the church at, in action in its fullest, all right? So make sure you circle that on your calendar. Can you make that a priority for me next week, Back to School Sunday? Can you answer me with your words? All right, awesome, thank you. All right, all right, we're good. Now, today we're finishing up uh, our series called Pursuing the Way. Uh, and up until this point in the series, the thing we have been talking about is the, the, how the journey of discipleship is oftentimes an inward journey, meaning that to follow Jesus, to be transformed in, his, in, in our character or in our desires or in our imagination is often a kind of internal, uh, an internal journey of discipleship. Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out, correct? Uh, our internal dispositions and our heart. But today I want to focus specifically on how the journey of discipleship to Jesus also transforms our outward-facing lives or the way we relate to people. Jesus wants to transform your and my relationships, the way we relate to people in the world. You know, relational healing, relational healing is one of the most powerful outgrowths of a fruitful life lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Relational healing. Jesus here's the truth, though, is not a magic bullet that automatically fixes every one of your broken relationships, right? And following Jesus does not guarantee in any way, shape, or form that you and I will not be hurt in this life, right? In fact, Jesus himself was greatly mistreated by those who said they were his friends, as we will see in a moment. He was abandoned. He was lied about. He was betrayed. But make no mistake, disciples of Jesus are people who are learning what it means to live at peace with everyone. We learn this on the path of following Jesus. To allow the life and the love and the relational health of the triune God, who is three in one, in eternal and perfect relationship, to allow that life to kind of infill our lives in such a way that we grow more healthy earthly relationships, all right? So today, I want us to meditate together on this invitation that Jesus extends to each of us, to this invitation into spiritually and emotionally and relationally healthy lives. Some of you might be sitting there and going, I need some more relational health in my life, right? There are some things that feel amiss, and we're going to do this by looking at this beautiful story of Peter's restoration at the end of John's gospel. Now, this is one of those stories that I think so beautifully reveals the heart of Jesus to us in his interaction with Peter here. 
that he would care so much for Peter that he would go to such great lengths to see him restored and their relationship, Peter and, Peter and Jesus' relationship, reconciled. Even, even when Peter is the guilty one. Peter is the, is the offender, right? Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet Jesus is the one who goes to these great lengths to restore Peter. He, Jesus is the offended one, right? And I think as we look at this story, you will see that the grace of God is, ma is made most palpably real in the world when those who would be or should be enemies, people who should be at odds, come to the table together and have a fish breakfast, all right? And as we look at this story, I really hope to just draw out these three things. I think they're on the screen for us here. When we follow Jesus, uh, when we follow the way of Jesus, we grow towards healthy, health in our relationships. We are adopted into a relationally healthy family called the church, and we learn to heal from our past relational wounds, all right? So that's where we're headed today. Now, in order to really understand why it was necessary for Jesus to even restore Peter in the first place, you need to understand what happened, what, what broke the relationship between Peter and Jesus in the story. In all four of the Gospels, Peter is Jesus' most prominent disciple and one of his three closest friends. They share life together. Peter was present for nearly all of Jesus' most prominent miracles. He was, as well as sharing these very close-knit, intimate, and quiet moments, that, the, the type of moments that two friends who are on the road together for three years would share. They walked arm-in-arm arm intimately as friends for three years. But when push came to shove, when Jesus was singled out as a would-be Messiah, a Jewish blasphemer, a Roman revolutionary, and was crucified, Peter denies Jesus. Peter denies Jesus after all of that time and after all of the things he saw. Peter, maybe because of fear that, that his fate was going to be the same as Jesus's, that he was going to be crucified, possibly just because out of sheer bewilderment, right? How, how in the world is this person who I thought was the Messiah, the one who was going to deliver Israel, how did he, how did he die this horrible death out of just bewilderment at that? Who knows exactly what was going on in Peter's mind, but because of all of that, he denies that he even knows Jesus. When a young boy, not even an important person, but a young boy asks him directly three times if he is Jesus' disciple. And so the scene we have today is Jesus coming to Peter after the resurrection and in front of all of the other disciples and lovingly restoring him to his position as a disciple, yes, but also... Uh, inviting him back into the close and intimate relationship that they shared before. G Peter here is given his job back as a leader in the church. He is given his job back here. He's restored to that position. But I would argue that the primary restoration that takes place here is the restoration of Peter and Jesus' relationship. It's their relationship. Je Jesus asks Peter three times, which is the exact number of times that uh, Peter denies Jesus if he loves him. Not if he's committed to be a leader in the church. Not if he wants his job back. He says, do you love me? And Peter responds in sometimes um, slightly um, 
discouraged tones. Yes, Lord, of course, you know I love you. You see, this was not about just getting his job back. This was about a relationship, a relationship that Jesus did nothing to break in the first place, but which, he, but which he did everything to lovingly restore on the back end. And I believe this little story can work as a kind of parable for us as we follow Jesus and take steps towards the kind of relational wholeness and health that Jesus actually models for us in the Gospels. And so, first, when we follow Jesus, we grow towards health in our relationships. This is, a, this is a, a kind of natural byproduct of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is our teacher, and he models for us a kind of grace that we can grow into in our relationships. We all carry relational wounds, don't we? Don't we? We've all been hurt by somebody, haven't we? You know the depth of the wounds that you carry are often, often directly proportional to the closeness of the person who hurt you, right? This is why the wounds we derive from fathers and mothers and close friends are often the ones that cut the deepest. Maybe you were wounded by a friend you never expected in a million years would do that to you. Maybe you made yourself vulnerable, you shared your heart with a person, and in the end, it ended badly, and you were betrayed. Maybe you trusted somebody and they gave you a job and they ended up firing you. We all have been hurt by people we thought we trusted, haven't we? Each of us has a story of the relational discord that we've experienced in our lives. So does Jesus. So does Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, with betrayal. And yet on the cross, he cries out to God to forgive the very people, the centurions, who were driving the nails into his hand at that very moment. And when, B and when Peter betrays Jesus, what does Jesus do? First, he helps him catch a lot of fish, which is great. And then he sits down to breakfast, which is a beautiful which is a beautiful thing, right? Breakfast is one of the best meals of the day. Even though people are saying you shouldn't eat breakfast now, they, first, they used to say breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Now they say intermittently fast for 48 hours. I don't know anymore. I like eggs, so I'm going to continue to eat eggs. But um, sidebar, Jesus invites Peter into this relationship-reconciling fish breakfast scenario. And the scriptures tell us that this is not the only time Jesus does this type of thing. And, it's, and Peter is not the only person with whom he makes this uh, overt and gracious move towards those who have betrayed him. In fact, the drama we see here uh, play out with Peter, we're told, plays out with us as well. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still God's enemies and ignorant of his grace, Jesus died that we might be reconciled back to him. And as Jesus' disciples, when we, when we glimpse, when we catch a glimpse of this relationship reconciling love of God in our lives, it can and should transform the way we relate to others. It's hard, it's hard to, to be enveloped in that type of love and to understand the offense that we have been 
and the transgressions that we have caused and yet hold other people's transgressions and sins against them, it becomes quite a bit more difficult. You see, as we follow Jesus, we experience what it's like to be reconciled to God even though we were the perpetrators of the evil, even though we were the evildoers, even though we were the wronger. And having been forgiven for the wrong that we have committed, it becomes far easier for us to live out of that grace in such a way as we learn to cultivate reconciled relationships where we, wherever we go in the world. You see, as we follow Jesus, we're, it's, we're able to cultivate his heart, that same heart that Jesus had when he reconciled his relationship with Peter, we can carry in our relationships with others. Now, there will be people who have hurt you that are not safe to step back into close relationship with, all right? This is a truth. An abuser is not a safe person, and you have no need to be their best buddy again, for instance, all right? But you can forgive, and you can allow God's grace to fill you with love for that person, even if you shouldn't be in close proximity to them, right? But most relational reconciliation that God wants for us, and I, I believe this, is possible, right? Most of, the, most of the way we're supposed to orient our lives relationally in the world and the reconciliation God wants to bring about in our lives is possible because it's not about somebody who's abused us and is actually dangerous that we, need, we do need to create healthy boundaries with. It's about the way we hold grudges and, and, and hold anger and, and, and keep a record of offense and live ungraciously and see people as competitors or see people as people who, uh, who could harm us in some way. It's a, a lot of the re relational strife we have in our lives is because we have thrown up walls because we haven't healed from past relational hurts. And so we keep ourselves separate from people that, that we actually should draw near to. You see, most of the relational stress in our lives is something we can and should heal from. And we should move into a place where our relationships grow more and more healthy, where we open our hearts more and more to people. You know, maybe you are one of those people that is just subtly competitive with everyone you know, right? Are any of you, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just asking rhetorically, and you can ask yourself, are any of you subtly competitive, right, with that person at work or that mom down the street whose kids got, has nicer cleats than your kids, right? And you allow those subtle competition, that subtle competition, or maybe the slight, or maybe the opinion that person shared on social media to throw up a wall, a relational wall, right? Maybe you think that the, the opinion that person has about a certain thing is not the right opinion, and so you want to create some relational distance there. I don't know what it is. There's a myriad of reasons. We create all manner of reasons to be separated from people relationally, don't we? Maybe we're just slightly fearful. We're nervous. We've been hurt in the past, and we don't want to put ourselves in that position again. But when we follow Jesus and we have felt his enemy reconciling love come streaming into our hearts, we can't help but relate differently, can we? This is uh, the, the scholar and philosopher, Christian scholar and philosopher, James K.A. Smith says it this way. He says, people look different through the lens of grace. Instead of being competitors or friends, they're gifts 
Some are even friends. You see, we begin to see people not as a threat to our autonomy, not as pawns to move around the chessboard of our lives, but rather as gifts. The grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus give us the strength to move towards relational health in our lives. It really does. To not hold on to grudges and offenses and to live open and freely just as Jesus loves us. Just like Jesus loved Peter. So that's number one. The second thing that happens when we follow Jesus is that we are adopted into a relationally healthy family called the church. Now, when Jesus restores Peter, he invites him back into leadership in this organization that he's forming. Peter didn't even know what he was in for at this point, but he invites him back into leadership in the church. We hear a bit bit of Jesus's heart for the church that did not even exist yet when he tells, when he commissions Peter to feed my sheep, right? Care for my lambs, he says. Peter is commissioned to nurture and care for the community of Jesus followers that isn't even in existence yet, right? A church that Jesus just a few chapters earlier in John 17 prays for. You know, do you know this? When I first ran into this, what's often called in in John's gospel, Jesus' high priestly prayer, I was simply blown away. I read it every day for like a month, my freshman year in college, because it was just so startling to me that Jesus would go out of his way to pray into existence the thing that is the church. And what's fascinating to me is what exactly he prays for the church. In John 17, 20, this is what Jesus prays. Just a few chapters before he does this restoration of Peter, he says this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Their message is the the apostles' message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's powerful stuff, right? So Jesus here lays out a vision of what the church should be at its best. And what does he say? The church is a body of deep relational unity and love all under the lordship of Jesus. This is what he prays. This is what he wants for us. He actually says that this relational unity and love will be the defining characteristic of a Jesus community. More than what we believe, more than the points we have on our website about our statement of faith, right? I was at an event one time, downtown Des Moines. I was on staff at a church, and we had this little booth And this guy walked by, and he picked up some of our material, and he flipped it around. He said, where are your points? And I said, points? What do you mean? He said, you know, your points about what you think. I said, "Um, we, yeah, they're not there. (laughs) And he said, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm very into church, he says to me. What are your points? And I, and I just said, man, I I don't want to talk about our points. What's your name? (laughs) Right? I wanted a relationship, right? And he wanted to know what the, what, the, what the doctrine was. 
And I thought to myself, well, doctrine is good and healthy, right? Doctrine keeps us on the train tracks of what it means to be uh, a Jesus community, and our beliefs are important. I'm not saying they're not. Jesus doesn't say they will know that you are in me and I am in them because their points are right. It's not what he says, is it? He says the, the way that the world will know that Jesus is in us and that we are in God and that this is a Jesus community is that we, and we grow into unity through our diversity, through our diversity. And this is the picture we get of the church in the New Testament, a culturally, ethnically, politically diverse community of Jesus followers learning how to live together in unity and love. This is what we get in the book of Acts, right? Mo the, the, the story of the day of Pentecost is a story of people from di with, from di with diverse languages and diverse cultures all being gathered together under the lordship of Jesus. You see, when we follow Jesus, we step into a church. This is what happens when we follow Jesus. And the way we witness to the world that God, that the love of God is in us, is that we grow into a relationally healthy community with people who some would say we shouldn't even be friends with. The early church was this mashup of Jews and Gentiles. In many cases, people who were literally at war at different points in their history, but were invited to the same table and acknowledged the same Lord in Jesus. And were called to put the reconciling love of Jesus on display through the way that they loved one another. And can I be honest with you for a moment? I've been lying to you up to this point, but now <laughs> is the honest portion of our Sunday morning gathering. <laughs> this is why I feel so strongly that our church, Grace Community, must be a diverse church. A church full of political diversity, people who vote differently from one another. Cultural difference, people who come from different places, have different life experiences, see the world differently, who can come together and share openly about the way they experience the world and we can learn from one another. This is why I think Grace Community needs to be, have a diversity of ages at our church, right? Grace Community must be a church where we have cross-generational relationships, where the old and the young, where college students and high school students can grow deep relational roots and learn from one another. I don't want this to be a cooler-than-thou hipster okay boomer church, right? Which we're not really in danger of. But, uh, <laughs> but, also, I, but I also don't want us to grow into a, a now kids these days just don't understand how to work hard type of church either, right? That's not what we want to be. But Grace Community needs to be a church of mutual affection and love, of cross-cultural, cross-generational, cross-political relationships. You see, a healthy church is meant to be a relationally healthy family. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again, where we can learn how to live as healthy followers of Jesus together, where we unlearn some of the, healthy, some of the unhealthy relational patterns we have gathered over our lives, whether that's from our family of origin or through broken relationships that we had experienced in our past. The church is a kind of incubator where we learn new and healthier relational patterns. 
See, according to Jesus, when you are part of a church, you are invited into a family where you can learn what it means to live a relationally healthy life, which assumes that when we come into the church, we don't necessarily know how to live relationally healthy lives in the way that we should, right? There is an assumption there. And that means that there is going to be relational tension in churches. This is not heaven, right? This is not the new creation. All is not well, right? You and I are broken people, and we are stumbling at times towards the people that God wants us to be. And so that means as we strive toward, as we follow Jesus and we strive towards becoming a relationally healthy people in a relationally healthy community, there is going to be difficulty. There are going to be arguments. There will be struggle. But when we make Jesus the center of our lives and we follow him and his example, when we allow our hearts to be transformed by the grace of God, when we understand the power and the glory of a life lived, enveloped in the love of Jesus, we can learn and grow. We can kind of fight through those relational difficulties and we become more healthy, not less. More healthy, not less. The... uh, the New Testament, I like to say, I think like maybe 85% of the New Testament is just primarily Paul saying to the church, get along, figure it out, right? This is important stuff. You got to figure out how to get along, which implies that they did need to figure out how to get along, right? No church is perfect. No, no, no relational environment or ecosystem is exactly what it should be. But rather, we, we strive towards the reality of the unity and love that Jesus prays for us in that high priestly prayer, don't we? We, we seek to step into a more relationally healthy environment. And we allow our relationships one, with one another to kind of bump into each other, to, to experience relational difficulty at times, and then to grow through that relational difficulty into more, a more flourishing life. Right? Right? <laughs> That's the point. But over time, over time, with these people... We learn what it means to live in an emotionally and relationally and spiritually healthy way. And I learned how to tell the truth, maybe, right? I learned how to stop lying, both to myself and to other people. I learned how to be vulnerable, right? I learned how to let that hard exterior shell kind of fall away, and I learned how to be vulnerable. Maybe I am one of those people that gets really enmeshed emotionally with other people, and I learned to create and develop and maintain healthy boundaries over which I can have a healthy relationship, right? More than anything, we just learn what it means to be a part of God's family. That's what we learn in the church. I love this quote from Pete Scazzaro. He says this, when genuine love is realized in a relationship, God's presence is manifested. And that might sound like a grandiose thing to say, right? That when, healthy, when a healthy church or when a healthy relationship exists, when genuine love is realized in a relationship that God's presence is manifested, it might sound a little crazy. But let's go back to what Jesus prayed, right? This is how the world will know. This is how the world displays the glory of God when our relationships, when our unity and our love is fully formed. It sounds like to me that Jesus would agree with Scazzaro's quote there. 
And that when we strive to uh, experience the loving presence of God, what we also need to strive for is healthy relationships, right? Right? Right, amen. So Jesus says in John 17, the primary manifestation of the life of God in the world is when the church displays unity and love with each other. That's what Jesus says. And I'm going to go with him. So point three, when we follow Jesus, we also learn to heal from our past relational wounds, but not perfectly. Uh, uh, but, but we are never perfect. That's how we put it there, right? But we are never perfect. After Peter is asked these three times if he loves Jesus, and Jesus uh, restores Peter, Jesus then goes on to tell Peter that his life from that point on is not going to be easy, right? It's not the type of thing you want to hear after you've been restored in relationship. What you want to hear is, here's breakfast. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, I know you do. Great. Let's, let's go to a movie. I don't know what it is, right? What you want to hear is something good. <laughs> let's go back out on the boat. We'll pull the jet ski or something. Uh, you don't pull jet skis, you ride jet skis, which are very fun, and you should all do it before the summer's out, just not on Sunday mornings. The, but this isn't what Jesus says, is it? What does Jesus tell Peter? You're going to die a martyr's death. <laughs> do you love me? Good. You're going to die a martyr's death. And this must have been unnerving to Peter, because the text tells us that Peter does something interesting after Jesus says this. Peter turned, beginning in verse 20, it says, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the, upper, uh, at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what, does that, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter just had this incredible time of restoration with Jesus. He was just shown the grace of God in the face of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the, the Messiah, the Lord. And what does he do? He turns to see John, who is, who's being talked about here, one of Jesus, another one of Jesus' three closest friends, probably his most beloved friend. Someone that it is pretty clear from the text of the Gospels Peter had some relational tension with, right? And he falls right back into the old pattern of relational tension with John, right? It's pretty clear, right? Maybe they were vying for Jesus' friendship, right? Maybe they were vying for the position of leadership as, as some of Jesus' top disciples. But whatever it was, Peter says, sees, uh, but whatever it was, Peter sees John and he says, well, what about that guy? Isn't he a piece, right? And Jesus responds the way I think we would all respond. Have you ever had a, a sit-down conversation with your, one of your children when they did something that was a little out of bounds and you spend like 10 or 15 minutes and you explain to them that what, what, what they did wrong and you give them a little bit of a parable about what, what the natural ramifications of their actions are and, you, and they say, yes, mom, yes, dad. It was a, I will never do it again. And you say, good. And you, you hug and you tell each other you love each other. And you think, oh, I'm just an amazing parent. And then you walk around the corner and they like throw a brick at their brother or sister's head. And you go, oh, what did I just do? I just wasted 15 minutes. This is Jesus in this parable. The point is that Peter has just seen, experienced so intimately the relationship reconciling love of Jesus. And yet he hasn't learned to 
let that flow through him to his friend and compatriot, John, has he? You see, Jesus wants to heal our relationships, and he wants us to come to a place of healing. And the first step in healing our external relationships is feeling and experiencing the loving, reconciling love of God, right? But we still need to allow it to flow through us. And we will never be perfect at it, at least not this side of Jesus' return. You see, this episode shows us that Jesus has given us the resources to heal from our past relational wounds. You have been given those resources to live relationally healthy lives, but we are still human beings. And this side of our earthly lives, we, st we will still have relational tension. Andrew, if you could come play for a minute, wherever you're at. We will not be perfect, but thank God for the grace and love of Jesus. The point of the gospel is that Jesus knows full well that we will never be perfect, right? That all of our lives and every single one of our relationships will not be great. You will not always respond the way you should. You will occasionally hold grudges longer than you should. That you might bear unforgiveness in your heart. And though the love of Jesus will pull you as you follow him to make amends and to live more relationally healthy, and I believe as you follow him, there will be a transformation of your external relationships, the grace of God is still there for each and every one of us. Right? Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The point is that we live forgiven lives and that we seek to see that forgiveness work its way into all of the corners of our lives, even the imperfect corners, even the parts of our heart where we bear grudges that we should, that we should probably lay down, but they feel so good, so we're just going to hold on to them for a little longer, right? You see, Jesus knows that, and he still comes to us just like he comes to Peter, and he comes to us over and over and over again. The gospel actually tells us that we can't exhaust the loving grace of God, and he says, here's what I did for you. When you betrayed me, I made you breakfast, right? When you turned your back on me, I knocked on your door. When you... Uh, did that wrong thing or bore that grudge or loved money or your house more than you loved me, I was still there, ever present. And so that when we encounter those experiences in our own lives, we can uh, center ourselves back on the person and the love and the grace of Jesus. And then from that place of security, we can reach out relationally into our world to begin to love and to bless and to heal broken things. And this morning, man, you have a broken relationship in your life, don't you? Don't you? I feel very confident saying that every one of you does. Because we are human, right? And maybe Jesus wants you to take some step towards righting that wrong. Maybe that step just begins in your heart, where you begin to pray for this person who's wronged you. And here's the thing about this relational health thing. You, your rightness in the situation doesn't matter. Their ultimate wrongness doesn't matter. Peter was wrong, 100% wrong. And yet, Jesus 
wanting to step into relational health with him. There will be times in your life where people will do things to you that are just wrong. But yet God asks us to step into a place of forgiveness with them. And sometimes relational reconciliation with them. So that we can live free of it. And so that the grace and love of God can flow where we're at. This is why when, when the Apostle Paul gives his teaching on communion in 1 Corinthians, he says to the church, uh, some of you have been taking the, the coming to the table wrongly. What he means there is that there's relational strife and you need to sort that out because the church is meant to be this body of unity and love that reflects the goodness and grace of God out into the world. And so today, would you stand with me as we pray? And I just want you to hold that person that maybe the Holy Spirit has just brought to your mind in your heart and in your mind right now. Maybe you can literally hold them up to God uh, by just turning an upraised palm and saying, God, would you help me? Would you help me to move towards relational health? Would you help me to heal from those hurts that I've had? Would you help me to forgive this person who has wronged me? Would you help me to be a person of grace in the world in such a way as that I could live freely and openly in the loving embrace of God, that I could allow the love of God and the spirit of God to flow through me, that there are blockages to that love because of my the relational discord that I live in, but rather that I would become, like Jesus, a person of relational health. And so, Jesus, this morning, I pray for my friends, and I pray that you, by your Spirit, would lead and guide them, that you would give them uh, specific guidance as to how to step in to a little bit more relational health over the coming weeks and months. God, if it's a boss that they at, at work that they just can't stand, God, would you help them to understand how to be a person of love in that situation, a person of relational health in that situation. If it's a past wound, somebody maybe far in their past, God, that they, they need to heal from that wound, God, would you give them the resources, would you bring the people around them that would allow them to take the steps necessary to heal from that wound and to become a relationally healthy person so that that wound isn't carried into future relationships and break that thing. God, more than anything this morning, we pray that you would make Grace Community Church an incubator of the Spirit, that you would make us a healthy relational community, that you would allow us to work through all of those tensions that come about when a group of people live in relationship with one another. And would you, but would you give us a vision for the future glory that you're going to bring about because of your son Jesus, and would you help us to live into that? Father, would you bind us together in your love, make us an example of your unity and your peace, and would the, would the presence of the Almighty God be manifest in this place because of it? We pray it this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, and amen, and amen. Well, thanks for being at church today. I would encourage you, that's a heavy message. It is. It's pretty heavy. Would you please just stew on that a little bit? If you need to take a moment and pray where you're at, Andrew will keep playing for a couple of minutes. If you need to take a moment and pray, I think that would be a healthy thing. If you want to come up front and pray, that, that, that would be wonderful as well. Today's a good day. It's a good day to allow the Lord to work on our hearts, isn't it? It is. It is. As you go today, 
uh, would you go in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't already, would you please uh, sign up for our Cadence Closet event this week? You can talk to Jen a little bit more about it if you have any questions. Uh, I love you. I do. I love all of you. And I'll see you next week. All right? All right. All right.